Hello and welcome to Hemoten History. I almost forgot the name. <laughs> you did almost get the name. <laughs> I'm Michelle. And I'm Grace. And this week's episode is about Australia. I going down under. Continuing yes. with our where our listeners are. It's our third most popular country. Hey, <laughs> thank you, Australia. I feel like uh, in Eurovision when they do that. Thank you, Australia. Our twelve points go to. Yeah, aren't they are in Eurovision, aren't they? They are in Eurovision. Yeah. yeah. I think because they there's so many of them watched it that they they are for one night an honorary European country. I feel like it's just eventually going to be Global Vision. I feel. I feel like everybody except America will one day be allowed in. I feel like the Amer- yeah. like America will be the one that will just never be allowed, even though they so want it. <laughs> and you can tell that they want it, and we're just like, no, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. you can't. No matter how many films you make as well about it, you can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so I think I'm going first this week. Yeah. And so, as per usual, I've bended the rules slightly. So rather than do just one, I have done mm-hmm. two people uh, from Australia. So uh, the names are Kate Lee or Kate Lay and Tilly Devine. Have you ever heard of them? Nope, not at all. No, fantastic. So I'll start with Kate. So she was born Kathleen Mary Josephine. I think it's Behan or Behan. Mm-hmm. Is the surname is pronounced uh, on March tenth. 1881 in Ooh. Dubbo, New South Wales, in Australia. <gasps> Sorry, mine is mine's just very similar time and place. It's weird, but it's not the same person. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I might know who you're doing then. Okay, she was the eighth child to Roman Catholics uh, Timothy Bian and Charlotte Bian. I'm probably pronouncing that surname wrong, so let's just mm-hmm. pre- pretend I'm, I'm I'm just pronouncing it right. So. From what I can tell, her dad was just kind of, you know, just worked. Uh, he, he said he was a bootlicker, so he just kind of had a normal job. And her mum, I don't think, worked. So she spent a lot of kind of her childhood in neglect and then actually mm. ended up in a girl's home as well a bit later on. Mm. And then when she was 19, she was got pregnant and she was out of wedlock. So kind of there was a lot of stirring around. So from what I can tell, mm. it wasn't a fantastic upbringing. So when she met James Lee, who was an illegal bookmaker, I think she kind of saw like a way out mm. of kind of the situation she was in. And not long after meeting him, they then got married in 1902. And then she took his name, which is why she's Kate Lee. Mm-hmm. Though they did break up when he was imprisoned in 1905 for assault and robbery. So mm. she did lie for him on the stand and she did keep his surname, but then they separated. And she <laughs> she changed the spelling of it. Mm-hmm. So James Lee was Chinese, so it was spelled L-E-E, mm-hmm. whereas she then changed it so it was L-E-I-G-H. So she like anglicised it, mm-hmm. but still kept it, which is... Interesting. A bizarre choice. So she also had to obviously like earn a living herself. So she would earn money by selling alcohol, which was illegal after 6pm at the time. So the, the mm. government had made it so that pubs had to close at 6 and were not allowed to sell alcohol. So she would just well, have her own really establishments. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wonder where the... the yeah. Although I think that the timings were a bit different and it was for a a different reason um, (laughs) than a global pandemic. She was also a drug dealer and she was a madam as well. So yeah, she managed to earn quite the name for herself within criminal circles of New South Wales. And she actually earned the title the Queen of the Underworld. Nice. What a great name. (laughs) I know. And she she swore though, she despite like everything that she did, all of the business she was involved Mm -hmm. in, she never smoked and she never drank. 
impressive. I know. I'd just be tempted too much. You'd be like, ooh, mm. illegal booze. She got married to Edward Barry in 1922, who was a musician and of course also a criminal she took his name as well but then when they got divorced she went back to lee she didn't and mm-hmm. obviously like go back to her maiden name and then she had a relationship with walter tomlinson in the late 20s um who was a bodyguard of hers he was also a criminal of course having been charged when he was 16 for attempted murder so she's wow. she's surrounding herself by some like pretty cracking people mm-hmm. and then when he left she had a relationship with his business partner Henry Baker in 1932 that began and then they when they separated she then got married to Ernest Ryan in 1950 who was an old friend of hers and of course also a criminal mm-hmm. <laughs> they separated six months after marrying and then she never got married again so those names you can pretty much like forget instantly mm-hmm. but the, the kind of thing was that she she constantly tried to like she you know and they all these kind of guys were just awful to her and she spent a lot of time in jail for them oh. yeah but kind of when she was then done with that <laughs> she then went on to kind of like have her own name establishment and was then you know have some fun she'd go to random court cases and heckle the judges and the lawyers and sit peeling vegetables in court and things so yeah. she she kind of yeah she um she kind of i think once she'd established a name for herself and had kind of got where she wanted to be she was then able to have a lot more fun with it mm. so we'll quickly go on to the other woman i'm doing who's called tilly divine who was born mm. matilda mary twist on the 8th of september 1900 she was the daughter of a bricklayer called edward twist and alice twist who there is no more information other than her name so mm-hmm. again kind of you know just plain background that you know not but tilly was from london so from england Mm. and from a very very specific address i don't know why but whenever i do research i get the very specific address that they were from so she was Mm. from 57 hollington camberwell london so if anybody's near there feel free to take a trip (laughs) so when she was 16 she got married to james edward joseph divine and at the time so she started working at age 12 as a sex worker and then when she got married she just kind of continued doing that and he didn't from what i understand like offer any sort of way out of this um yeah and she was the information got a bit confusing because it said that she was arrested in 19 15 and or you know would be arrested regularly until 1919 and from what i can gather it was for like separate occasions because on the list of things that she was arrested for was like prostitution theft and assault but then in 1919 she gave birth Mm. and i from what i understand (laughs) of giving birth you can't really do that if you've been in like an all-female prison for four years like that doesn't just happen have you seen so, orange this in the new black <laughs> very uh, yeah that's very true actually um <laughs> so i assume it was from yeah but that sure that would have been speculated about so everyone mm. understand she would like she'd serve certain time and then she'd be let out and then she'd go back in and serve time so james had had told her like when they'd met and and that he was he was from australia and that he was really wealthy over there and he had like his own kangaroo farm <laughs> and so she was like brilliant brilliant so we'll go to australia where you have this farm and all of this money so he he did and, and she went with him for some reason they left their son their, their newborn <laughs> son they they left him with her parents and then when they arrived in sydney he had nothing no wealth no no absolutely nothing so she had to go and work on the street again but now in 
in Sydney in an, in an area that she didn't know oh. and he would just then be her bodyguard. That's not very nice. Yeah. So she also would kind of earn a name for herself within the criminal circles but she was also quite unconventional about the way she went about it and, and so she would like go to segregated bars so like bars where women couldn't drink um, and she'd just refuse to leave mm. and then eventually people would serve her. She'd also like if there was like corrupt police around she'd like pour petrol on them and set them on fire so yeah she was very much like take no shit uh, but give no mercy kind of way of doing things um and her and james would kind of earn a name for themselves by selling illegal narcotics they would they ended up buying a, a brothel and you know becoming parts of from what i can gather uh, there was lots of kind of gangs in the area at the time and they would then like uh, align themselves with one of them so they you know fit right in mm-hmm. so tilly was very clever at the time though because the law stated that it was only illegal for men to run a brothel but there was no oh. law about whether women could do it or not so she would have a house she had i think like three different kinds of business within those brothels so she had call girls who would work for like politicians and businessmen and like wealthy people she would have tenement girls who were for more kind of working class um like you'd go there and you know you'd pay mm. for it very cheap but also you'd have boat girls <laughs> Oh my <laughs> who were older sex workers who would who were there for kind of like sailors mm-hmm. to have sex with which i didn't realize was like a separate thing mm. <laughs> but she refused to work with same sex on the same sex market which, because she just didn't agree with it which for some reason it felt notable in the research to tell me despite the fact i thought pretty much most people in you know the 1920s would have held that same opinion yeah. <laughs> yeah. She went on to own a lot of estate in Sydney. She had mm. a lot of cars. She dealt with gold, diamonds, um, and she also had a lot of kind of, you know, underhand dealing with the police. But not all police. She did have 204 convictions against her by the time that mm. she died um, for sex works, assault, and even attempted murder. So not all, not all the police were a bit dodgy. Just, just, just most of them. Now, Tilly Devine and Kate Lay weren't the only criminals mm-hmm. around the area at that time. There were others. There were some other fantastically colourful characters, but obviously they're the only two that I shall be talking about. Mm-hmm. So, together, they were both operating around the same time. And so if we kind of just begin in the 1920s, when Kate is working to build her alcohol empire, she has over 20 establishments, and they are kind of ranging from working class kind of bars to really high-end businesses. And at the same time, Tilly is working in her brothel, establishing a name for herself as Notorious Madam. Mm-hmm. And so this is all kind of going really well. And then this policewoman called Maggie Baker is kind of sent to go on parole one morning to kind mm-hmm. of just gather information about what's going on around. And Tilly didn't like this. So she like grabbed Maggie just off the street and just like began shaking her okay and so no explanation as to why and then all of a sudden this like tram car passes and off this tram car hops kate who punches tilly in the face oh my god and so then kate sat on tilly to hold her down and then turned to maggie and says basically like if you're all right now like i'll hold her down and like you go on your way and if she tries anything again 
Uh, don't worry, I'll take care of it. <laughs> so Maggie's a bit confused, and then it's never really explained what had caused this rivalry between these two women. But in like a very short space of time, so in rebuttal for that, Kate then trashes Tilly's brothel. Okay. So in rebuttal for that, Tilly then smashes up Kate's stores. So in retaliation for that, <laughs> Kate then sends people out to slash. Tilly's sex workers. Jesus. And in retaliation for that, Tilly then sends people to slash Kate's coke dealers. Wow. Yeah. My goodness. And it kind of, it went like, and then Kate set up like snipers on her roof. Like, and this (laughs) went on and on and on and on and on. For years (laughs) between these two women. (laughs) Right? It'd be so funny. Now at the time as well, firearms were quite hard to get uh, a hold Mm. of in Australia. So all this was kind of going around with razors. Mm. Like real peaky blinders kind of (laughs) stuff. Mm. And they, you know, you were over there. But um, Kate and Tilly, however, would just use their fists and they would literally just beat the shit out of each other. Nice. Yeah. So so around then the 1930, the police kind of realised, you know, they, 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 I mean, they'd known what was going on, but they were like, we want, okay, we want this finally finished. Like, we're, we're tired of this. So a law was passed that said that the police were able to arrest anyone they didn't like the look of because they suspected they were, in quotes, a bad character. Interesting. Yeah. And what you're thinking is where it goes. So they also weren't, sorry, allowed to arrest anybody who had a razor as a weapon, which Mm. is, I mean, that one seems a bit more reasonable. But couldn't you Um, say, oh no, but I just wanted to shave in the street. (laughs) It's like, dude, you're, you're holding it against someone's throat. Yes, I'm giving him a close shave. You're also like holding him down. Yes. It's a very, very close shave. (laughs) So although this kind of, this did stop a lot of criminals in the area and it did stop the gang violence, did have, you know, other awful consequences that you can imagine. And particularly upon the gay men who were living at at that time. Because there was one police officer in particular, who I'm not going to name the name of because he's a piece of garbage, who used this law very specifically to target, like he would go after after gay men that he didn't like and deemed them bad character and then used this opportunity to throw them in prison. He's a bad character. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> so Kate and Tilly then just kind of went off the radar. They Tilly went back to England for nine months. It never said why, she just did. Mm. And then Kate went for prison for 12 months. But despite the fact that they were no longer living in the area, they were still kind of able to keep their businesses operating. And so they, they were still earning from them. So Kate then met this, you know, woman in prison, uh, became friends with her. When she got out of prison, she then robbed her from with for everything that she owned. Mm. And then randomly when she got out, she also shot some guy in the crotch, mm. which was never explained it just said that she did because she was just a bit you know insane and this was then the point obviously the press got involved because Mm. things were getting a bit interesting now so the police being able to say that someone was a bad character would also all of a sudden be influenced by the press so the press were able to kind of write that someone was a bad character the police didn't even need to suspect them of being a bad character they could just go and arrest them straight away Mm -hmm. so what Kate and Tilly did was they went directly to the press to like slander the other (laughs) so yeah and and the intention was obviously that then the other would then get locked up so they called a physical truce so there would be no more kind of like I'm gonna go and and like physically harm you 
your people you're not going to physically harm mine but now there was just kind of this battle with words where they would just kind of go to the press and they would just say really petty stupid things about the other but in a way to also like promote themselves so they'd say like you know she's very disrespectful uh, towards people of authority but i'm very respectful and it for some reason this worked <laughs> and i don't quite understand mm-hmm. they'd advertise their own charity and then began kind of like competing for image in the press they were both like donating to the salvation army to compete for the image that it gave them so yeah things kind of flipped a little bit and they kind of forgot the reason that they were doing it in the first place tilly at the same time was also fighting kind of her own personal um issues because she was going through uh, she was trying for a divorce from Hmm. her husband who'd lied to her about the Australia money and he also so he would beat her regularly and the judge just kind of didn't care he'd be like if you can provide me with an eyewitness then yes I shall grant your divorce oh my god that's ridiculous yeah so she had to go just I just don't understand why you'd be like domestic abuse okay yeah but we need an eyewitness I'm sorry is the woman of which the, the domestic abuse is being inflicted upon not a good enough eyewitness? The bruises on um, No. So she had to provide an eyewitness and then she was actually able to file for divorce and went successful. And then she did marry a few years later, I think three years later, to a guy called um, Eric Parson. And it was quite, you know, a jub... Uh, what's the word? Jubilous? Jubilant? 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 A really happy time. (laughs) And they partied all night until, you know, until the early hours of the morning. And then five fire engines turned up and an undertaker arrived for them who'd been sent, allegedly, by Kate as a prank. Sounds a bit weird. (laughs) It's weird. I don't know. That kind of seemed like very petty, kind of humorous. It was no longer for the criminality of it. It was just for kind of like shits and gigs. Yeah. And so after all that, then in 1948, they just stopped fighting. Fair enough. Like, completely. And they called a truce. And there's a picture of them, them like, laughing and, like, shaking hands <laughs> about it. And they kind of, I suppose, realised that everybody else who'd, like, surrounded the madness of it all had died. Mm-hmm. And that they, those two were the only ones left. And so they just kind of... This literally sounds like a film script. <laughs> literally. It just... There were some bits that just seemed a bit weird. And I'm like, okay, that's a bit weird. But they, I don't think they were ever, like, fully friends after it. But they they didn't really, like, hate each other to the bitter end, I suppose. They both, because of, obviously, the laws changing and to do with, like, tax evasion and stuff, they both did suffer financially afterwards. Mm. So they both ended up dying kind of penniless, which is a really tragic end. So Kate died when she was 82 years old in 1964 in her home of a stroke, which is kind of... And Tilly died when she was 70 in 1970 in hospital from cancer. So they both kind of had just very like they didn't go out in like a blaze of glory Mm. um they died very very close to each other in their old age at tilly's Mm. funeral the only public eulogy given was by a police commissioner that's really sad who turned around and said she was a villain but who am i to judge her (laughs) i know she had very few mourners um at her funeral but kate for some reason had seemingly won the public image competition and did have uh her funeral was very 
well attended. And at her funeral, Maggie Baker was there. <laughs> like the police the police woman who'd kind of like started this whole thing. And then she gave a eulogy at Tilly's funeral and said that when she died uh, at Kate's funeral and said that when she died, she felt that a bit of good old Australian history had gone. <laughs> like it's just a bit there was like and there was never a film made about them but there was so there was this i think it's like a long running well not long running it, it a tv series that went on called underbelly um and each season would be about a different kind of criminal Mm-hmm. happening in australia and so one series was called underbelly and then like you know colon razor and it was about the raise the mm. you know razor gangs that were uh, in australia at this time and obviously the vice queens as they were called um tilly and kate were the main characters of mm. um the show but that's been like the only thing really mm. about them even though it just it seems like a fantastic comedically awful brilliant recipe for mm. a script <laughs> yeah so but yeah that that was them both kind of a bit insane mm. but uh complimented each other insane <laughs> That was so good. Thank you. <laughs> they do. Yeah. They need a um, series I, or something. They do. Like, they need something else, yeah. That's But with a modern... And I, I'm really enjoying like, when they do, like, old stories, but with a modern kind of, like, humour. Yeah. Um, and that has a very, very good opportunity for it. I do have to say mm-hmm. that the majority of my research came from the Rejected Princesses website. Um, like, a lot of the research. Um, because I tried to find, like, more information about them, but there was just so little about that actual like what they were doing when they had kind of like were fighting against each other it was just like oh and then they got married and then they got married i'm like no 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 i want that kind of the gritty yeah. details about what you know when they fucking set one of those places on fire <laughs> and things like that so um shall we take a break yeah We are Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Pline and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system or sharks digestive systems or how many priests are necessary for an exorcism or the guillotine or how much milk can fit in a shopping cart or how to cook dicks or what it means when your nose itches or penguins or why it's called Scotland Yard or proper body disposal or sentencing or how to make it through an entire episode without saying God. How big does a rock have to be to be a boulder? Or geography. Or whether stingrays have teeth. Or crime in Minnesota. Or how medical parole works. Or why people text their crimes to each other. Or the hierarchy of cops. Or what a paper grabber is. Anything about an Alfred plea. The security at Buckingham Palace. If warrants expire. How to start a fire. How much drugs cost. If ducks would make good guard animals. Whether priests have to tell the police about crimes they are aware of and maybe even involved in. Pink stun guns. How much do 11 pounds of cocaine worth? The mechanics of hanging. What happened to Carla Homolka after her release? How to make a car fly. The colonial parkway killer. Do swans migrate. Marital property laws in Florida. If horses can throw up. Do cockatiers hibernate? What animals can get drunk? How do you get stuck in a window? Where sharks live. International flight security. How to get a typewriter into your prison cell? What you shouldn't bring to a robbery. But we're still crazy for a good true crime story. If you don't know anything about these things either, you should come listen to Crime Crazy. Diana, do you have any advice for us? Yeah, you should subscribe to Crime Crazy. You can find us on iTunes or Google Play or Podbean or your podcast catcher of choice. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WordPress, Facebook, Gmail, or Facebook. Call your people. Yes, call your people. And don't end up on next week's episode. Hello and welcome back. Yes. 
So I have done Stella Maria Sarah Miles Franklin. Okay, long name. Yes, but she's mostly known as Miles Franklin. Okay. She was born on the 14th of October, 1879, Talbingo, New South Wales, in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a writer and a feminist. Okay. So she was the eldest child of seven for of John Morris Franklin and Susanna Margaret Eleanor Franklin. Um, mm-hmm. And so the mother was the great granddaughter of Edward Miles, who arrived in Australia with the first batch of like the first batch of criminals on the first fleet. Whoa. And he was given a seven year sentence for theft, and that's why he was sent. It seems so, still seems like barbaric that you'd sent them to another country for theft. I genuinely thought it was a joke when someone told me that, like, they just used to send criminals to Australia. I really thought they were joking. Yeah. But no. But no, it's literally something we, we did. And not just that, but, like, we went, oh, look at this land that is already populated by people. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll just ignore the people that live there mm-hmm. and we'll just dump our own people there. A wonderful time. So her family was a member of the squatocracy which was like a thing from the empire where they used to give like farmland to people to grow livestock yes yeah and she was educated at home until 1889 with them she attended thornford public school and during the time there she was encouraged to write by a teacher mary gillespie and tom hibblewhite hibblewhite yes and he was the editor of the local goulburn newspaper okay her first and best known novel my brilliant career was published in 1901 so she was 22 i think mm-hmm. yeah and it was about a teenage girl called sibella Sib- melvin who grew to womanhood in rural south wales but it was rejected for publication in australia but it was published in the uk oh why was it rejected in australia no idea okay <laughs> And she somehow knew Henry Lawson, who was a writer at the time, and he helped her to get it published. It's like his connections. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to keep her gender a secret when she published it, which is why she went with Mm -hmm. the name Miles Franklin. Ah. But Henry Lawson wrote in the introduction (laughs) that it was written by a girl. So blew that out the window. He had one rule. Yeah. Just just don't mention (laughs) gender. And he was like, nah, fuck it. So after his publication, she attempted... She, like, had a career in nursing for a while. and Oh, okay. Yeah, and then she was a housemaid in Sydney and Melbourne for a while as well. And during that, she was contributing pieces to the, the Daily Telegraph and the Sydney Morning Herald. Whoa! Um, both under the pseudonyms An Old Bachelor and Vernacular. Oh, I was going to say, I wonder how, like, if you were a patient of hers and you'd be like, it's a coincidence that your name is the exact same as the paper that I'm, <laughs> the name of the paper I'm reading, but... But it was under a pseudonym that she covered her bases. Mm. So, and also during the, the time with, with these jobs, she she wrote My Career Goes Bung, which was like the sequel to the first book, and where Sabella mm. encounters the Sydney literary set. That's all I know about it. But it wasn't actually <laughs> published until 1946. Which might have been after she died, I can't quite remember. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> and she also wrote a play at this time, which was anti-war, anti-war play, and oh. it was called The Dead, the Dead Must Not Return, um, and it never received 
a performance or it was never published but it received a public reading in september of 2009 oh Mm. it'd be interesting to go back and read that now Mm. because i imagine there'd be a lot of sentiments in that which now would be okay to express openly but Mm. like when when was this like were they just kind of first world war era i think this might have been pre- world war oh shit yeah that's gonna go down well yeah you say you hate war and everyone's like then we will have war with you (laughs) so she met and befriended some local feminists after she published the the first book that was actually published who were called rose scott and vida goldstein Mm -hmm. and so these women gave her connections because she moved to the u.s in 1906 and they kind of like set up with the connections to do that and she she mostly went because she was really interested in women's suffrage so she spent nine years in chicago working for the National Women's Trade Union League of America and um, co-edited the magazine which was called Life and Labour with um, Alice Henry and she she wrote a book as well sort of reflecting on these years in the US but again was not published Mm -hmm. until 1981 which she was definitely dead at that point it's so annoying that like most of her publishing credits would have been she like she would have never known yeah i don't know there's there's just something about like writing it for people and then trusting Mm. that it will get carried after you've died i know because like the amount of people who maybe wrote and like when they died someone was just like oh what's this piece of paper oh it's just a silly old story burn it yeah and like that could have been a masterpiece there's just you know it fell into the wrong hands and then she wrote another book called Some Everyday Folk and Dawn, which I'm not sure when that was published. But it was the story of a small town Australian family. And she uses purple prose, which I had to look up, where it's like purposely flowery language. Oh, um, oh I quite like that. Purple prose. Yeah, and it was used for comic comedic effect. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Right, kind of mocking. Yeah. Oh, what's the word? Like satire. Yeah. And then in 1912, she was having lots of bouts of ill health and she entered a sanatorium for a while. Oh, shit. Yeah. Not much is known from her time there. But then in 1915, she travelled to England and um, worked as a, a cook and earned some more money from nice. journalism. So she, she wrote a lot while she was in, in England, but only two things were published. But mm-hmm. one of the main things she went over there for because she wanted to help with the war. So in 1917, she volunteered for war work at the Austro Ostrovo unit of the Scottish Women's Hospital during the Serbian campaigns of 1917 to 18. Wait, wait, wait. She she helped out with the war effort. Yeah. I thought she was anti-war. I know, it's really weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was like, well, actually, come to think of it, <laughs> maybe I'll help. Yeah. I mean, maybe she just felt bad. I don't know. She was like, no one fucking read it. No one read the book. Oh, what's the <laughs> point? What's the point? I'll just help out. And then she also... She, yeah, she worked as a cook and later a matron's orderly in a 200-bed tent hospital in Greece from July 1917 okay. to February 1918. And then, strangely, she worked as secretary with the National Housing and Town Planning Association in London. London? Yeah, she worked there from 1919 to 1926. And um, she helped to organise a women's international housing convention 
1924. She kind of tried, tried her hand at, at yeah. everything. I really respect her I for know. that. Like, she was like, I just want to write, but actually, like, job-wise, I suppose I'll just do this, and then I'll do this, and I'll do this. <laughs> so I, I read, like, four different accounts of when she went back to Australia. So one said mm. 1927, 28, 31, 32. So somewhere around there. Oh, she went back to australia either it was a very long journey back yeah (laughs) yeah and she she mostly went back i mean one reason said she missed home another said her father died so one of them reasons i suppose they kind of go hand in hand yeah true so yeah when she went back home she was like helping to look after her parents and she was struggling with money a bit as well as just trying to look after them but then Mm-hmm. It says in 1928, so it makes me think it was before, like 1927. Yeah. Um, she published Up the Country. So this was the first of six books that she published under the pseudonym Brent of Binbin. <laughs> what? Brent of Binbin? Yeah. Don't know why. Okay. <laughs> Binbin. I oh I see that's a place. I Maybe. I just. I was like, bean, bean. I was like, that's weird. <laughs> she went to a lot of lengths to keep this identity a secret. I mean, yeah, it's quite an embarrassing name. Yeah. So I don't know much about it, but it says that in the, in the 30s, she got involved with the Australian ultra-nationalist movement, which doesn't... Okay. I just, whenever I hear nationalism, I just hate it. But like, if it's in the context of like trying to keep the heritage of a place, then I then I like it, but not in a way it's that's weird that like she would've... English heritage. Is in like Australian, yeah. what are they called? Aboriginal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it'd be weird that she would like be trying to fight for Aboriginal heritage when she wasn't Aboriginal. Yeah. She was, or you know, at least was it on her mum's side that actually she was English. Yeah. We like we definitely know that she was from England. Yeah, it doesn't say much about it, but ultra nationalist. So yeah, she she kept writing historical novels about the Australian bush, mostly under the name oh, cool. of Brent of Binbin. That's got to be right. I, I'm gonna have to Google where this place is. Yeah. So a librarian from the New South Wales. Library called Dagmar Schmeidmeier said that she kept changing her name because she was sort of scared that nothing that she wrote would match like the first success of My Brilliant Career. And oh, so everything would be a first novel. Yeah, so that she was trying to like protect herself from like and like that novel from having bad reviews associated with it, which is why it came up with like mm-hmm. the bizarre name of Brent of Binbin. That makes sense. Yeah. Maybe it is like bin as in like bean, like when you've you've been somewhere. It is B I N. Her. Oh <laughs> yeah. Then yeah, no, that's that's yeah. Then I have been looking for it wrong. <laughs> in... And then in 1933, there was a novel published called Bring the Monkey, which is um, a satire on the English country house mystery novel. Oh okay. And it's sort of it wasn't a success when she published. Oh, and then she published another book in 1936 called All That Swagger, which was Mm -hmm. like a family saga, and she published it under her own name. And this book was hailed as an instant classic, and she won the S.H. Pryor Memorial Prize and, you know, brought it into like the canon of Australian literature. Well, when she was trying not to be somebody else. Mm. She was trying not to be a bean bean or a bin bin. (laughs) 
Yeah. And I've looked it up and that's not a real place. <laughs> I think it's just random. It's just a weird, weird place to pick. I know. So throughout her whole life, she was supporting Australian literature and keeping like that sort of tradition going. So she joined a fellowship of Australian mm-hmm. writers in 1933. She encouraged the young writers Jean Devaney, Sumner Locke, Elliot and Rick Throssell, maybe famous names mm-hmm. in Australia. I say, I yeah, I don't recognise the names. They all but... have their own Wikipedia pages, yeah. which means there's some level of fame there. <laughs> <laughs> and she supported new literary journals called the Mean Gin and Southerly, and mm. she liked to entertain lots of literary figures in her home in Carlton, New South Aww. Wales. There was. I think there was a specific teapot or teacup that she used to use when she was like entertaining people, which is like preserved in the the library in New South Wales now. That's brilliant. Mm. And then for the next like 20 years, she devoted herself to promoting Australian literature. Doesn't say how, but... (laughs) (laughs) Just reading it. Just reading it and then telling her friends about it. Yeah, maybe like writing about it and like sort of you know making sure that the the importance of it is not lost and then 1937 she declined appointment as an officer of the order of the british british empire which i did not realize was what an obe stands for yes (laughs) and then she won the prior memorial prize again in 1939 for an essay she wrote on Joseph Furphy and sort of writers that inspired her and he was one of them mm-hmm. and then this work ended up being a lecture series in at the University of Western Australia which were then the lectures were published after she died as laughter not for a cage and they were all about the history oh. and criticism of Australian literature have you heard of it no but that's that's quite cool I like when they kind of record a series of short anthology pieces and then put them together at the end Mm. sorry that made it seem as though i'd like read them (laughs) no no i haven't i'm sorry so her diaries sort of hint that she had lots of health conditions but doesn't say what but she she lived until she was 74 and she died on in september 1954 and her wish was that her ashes were scattered on junama creek at talbingo where she was born Mm -hmm. and so after she died was she left him the like all of her money she said that she wanted to create a foundation for a literary prize which Ooh. was originally i didn't realize you could do that yeah i mean i guess so just say whatever you want in your will <laughs> i'm gonna do that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was it was going to be called the Franklin Award, but it's called the Miles Franklin Miles Franklin Flang Miles Franklin <laughs> Literary Award. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and its aim was the advancement, improvement, and betterment of Australian literature. Um, and so she never actually made a lot of money from her books at all. And so they people think that she must have spent her last few years like scrimping and saving everything she could so that she'd like leave enough for this prize to happen. And she she wrote oh. um, that she she hoped the prize would ease the financial burden of other authors. Okay, that's really good. That's yeah oh hooks on the heartstrings yeah Mm -hmm. so the first winner of the award was patrick white with the novel boss Mm -hmm. in 1957 and then you know there was just a few things like there was so there's a suburb of canberra 
which is called Franklin, named after her. Oh, and wow. And there's a primary school there called Miles Franklin Primary School. And mm-hmm. the school holds an annual writing competition in her memory. Oh. And she... I love it because it's just like, it's using her memory just to encourage people to just continue writing. It's not, I don't know, there's nothing, I suppose it's not, you know, she didn't want it to celebrate her. Mm. She just wanted it to, so that more people could go on to do this thing that she'd loved. Mm -hmm. So she bequeathed her entire printed book collection to the Mitchell Library, which I think, I'm guessing it's in New South Wales. And then the Mm -hmm. State Library of New South Wales holds 47 of her diaries as well. Whoa. Mm. And then there was a film made of My Brilliant Career, directed by Gillian Armstrong, which won lots of international awards. And then in 2014 she was the google doodle celebrating her 135th birthday (laughs) the ultimate um honor yeah yeah Yeah, and that's miles franklin oh i like that because she seemed like really just humble Mm. about just kind of wanting to just do this thing that she liked and yeah as though it was just the pressure of trying to reach that level of fame that her first novel had Mm. she was like that's what kind of hindered her oh quite cute i'm guessing it's maybe a big prize in australia because i got some of the information from the website oh wow Mm. oh that's really good thank you this was a fun one i liked it Mm. do you have any recommendations for this week i do i i'm currently reading exciting times by nisha dolan who's an irish writer and it's about this woman who kind of goes to teach english at a foreign school um, in hong kong and kind of has to it's, it's kind of weird because the the plot of it is very kind of like steady but it's just really really good and really well written mm-hmm. that it's very much someone's thought processes but not in a it doesn't feel a bit too much mm. sometimes if you know what I mean it just feels quite realistic this is what someone's thinking Ooh. and yeah it's about them trying to work out a relationship between two different people and how that reflects upon them and and what they're looking for mm. so it's it's really really good it's very very like steady and a lot of deep thoughts in it but it's it's quite it's quite nice mm. um so yeah that's what i'm reading that's my recommendation mm. what is yours mine is the undoing which is a tv show ah and um, it's directed by a danish woman called Susanna beer she did mm-hmm. the night manager and bird box ah yes i said i thought i recognized her mm. name and her earlier films as well are quite good there's one called open hearts which i watched in my danish film class and it's about this family they accidentally run over this man and paralyze him and then like hit the, the the guy who was run over his girlfriend ends up in a relationship with the father of the dad of like the the wife who who ran him over and it gets really weird and complicated Ooh. and it's a strange watch but it's quite interesting but yeah oh yeah because i've seen a lot about the the undoing and about it doing well and mainly from um gogglebox yeah i keep making um, the mistake of watching and... gogglebox before i watch the next episode and therefore it spoils <laughs> it all yeah we just we just skipped because we know that we're going to watch it um as a family so we just we, we're like okay we're going to watch it so we just <laughs> skip the part in gogglebox so it doesn't spoil anymore but it looks really really good i'm excited to to watch it yeah it's about um actually it's better to not know <laughs> okay i say i don't know really what the plot is i've only seen like those like clips mm-hmm. but it seems like really like on the edge of your 
seat, not quite knowing. Mm. It's really, a bit really of a well thriller. Acted. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's Nicole Kidman and um. I mean, Hugh Grant's not. Hugh Grant isn't he's it? Not the best. Actor, yeah. So. Oh, is it? <gasps> <laughs> but um yes i'm excited to to watch that mm. as our listeners should be as well. thank you very much for wa- yeah. listening not watching <laughs> for watching what have you been watching <laughs> so and um yes thank you for listening and we shall speak to you next time yes thank you very much Bye.